Section 9 of The Moon Master by Charles Diffin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 9 The flame was scorching Jerry's hand that nervelessly opened to release the match. The man was like a statue, frozen to mental deadness. About his feet a light was playing, unseen. A bit of the dry stuff sprang brightly to yellow flame. Neither seeing nor feeling, the figure of Jerry Foster stood, held in the deadly magic of the malignant eyes. Dimly he sensed that the prostrate body on the floor was that of Marahana. Vaguely he knew when the form of the priest took a halting step forward. The fire his match had kindled was rising about his feet. The flame seared and stabbed with a pain that reached his dulled brain. Quivering and shaken, the body of Jerry Foster reacted again to a conscious thought. He leaped quickly as the deadly witchery left him, and he tore at the smoldering cloth about his legs. And now he knew the thing before him for what it was, shocking in its gigantic size, more so in the concentrated venom of its gaze. It was the flabby, scaly, and crusted whiteness of the thing that filled his being with a deadly nausea. He stared with a sickened fascination at the flabby, drooping pouches beside the mouth, the distorted, bulging head, and the short legs, armed with long, curving talons, legs that sprang from out the neck to clutch and tear at what the jaws might hold. Deadly and hateful, loathsome, beyond all imagining, Still Jerry Foster found it something a man could meet. Its devilish power to paralyze, and still the soul of him was gone. He snatched quickly for the gun at his belt and knelt to aim, then checked his finger on the trigger. The figure of the priest had come between him and the monster. The golden robe was dragging. It fell to the floor, to gleam dully in the flickering light of the fire. Against the heaping coils of white, the priest was outlined, drawn, as Jerry sensed, against the protest of every fiber of his being. Yet, one stiff step at a time, he went faltering on. The hair above his white face was torn in disarray, and the face itself, so exultantly fierce in its hour of triumph, now a mask of quivering, hopeless terror. The head of the monster came slowly to life. It raised and raised into the air. The mouth gaped open with a hoarse, sucking sound, then struck like a whip of light at the doomed priest. His screams, as the thing descended upon him, rang through the roar of the forty-five. Jerry fired again where the black eyes showed above the writhing body of their prey. The head jerked backward to tower in the darkness overhead. The mouth disgorged its contents to the floor. Only for a shuddering instant did the monster pause. Then it launched its great bulk in a counterattack, while the automatic poured out the rest of its futile lead. The gun was knocked from his grasp as the great head smashed past, swerved from its aim by the blinding bullets. Jerry knew only that his knife was in his hand, as the great scabrous coils closed inevitably about him. Vaguely he heard the shouting from behind, as the writhing folds engulfed him. He stabbed blindly 
at the scaly mass, again and again his knife ripped slashingly at the abhorrence that drew him close. Then his arm, too, was caught in the crushing, loathsome embrace. He felt no pain. The pressure alone was insufferable. His head was drawn back. Above him the horrible eyes glared into his. There was blood dripping from the jaws. He saw it in the brilliance of a light that flashed in blue heat overhead. There came in his ears a vast roaring of sound, a great heat blast that scorched and burned at his face. The crushing pressure was relaxed. He went reeling to the floor as the great coils whirled high into the air. He was stunned by the fall, his body inert and relaxed. But he knew through it all that from somewhere above there was a shrieking of gas, blue roaring fires, a flame that tore blastingly into a writhing contortion beyond. The tall figure of a priest was bending over him, but it was the voice of Winslow that was in his ears, a blessed human voice when he awoke. Thank God I made it, the voice was saying over and over. Thank God I found the ship and got back here in time. There was light within the cavern. The burning fungus was extinguished by the smothering coils that had crashed upon it. But beyond was a waving plume of yellow where a blue flame shot against a wall of rock. And Jerry, through the stress and riot of emotion that overwhelmed him, laughed chokingly, wildly, at the words of his companion. It is sodium, Winslow was saying in explanation, as he saw Jerry's eyes resting on the light. A hydrogen flame, but there's sodium in the rocks that turns the flame yellow. I rigged up a flamethrower of hydrogen. You would, Jerry gasped, through hysterical laughter. You would do just that and make your way back to this hell just to save me, you damn fool inventor. He clung to Winslow, who was raising him to his feet. Marahana was beside him, robed in the golden garment of the priest. She placed her hands beside his face to turn him toward the further wall. The light was fickle, but it showed him, as it rose and fell, the blackened, swollen body of the monster, still writhing in its death struggle. And beside it, blasted and charred, the head of the obscene sun-god severed by the cutting, obliterating blast, lay flabby and black in a silent heap. Rather effective, said Winslow complacently, though I didn't have much to work with. Two small vials of my liquid and a hand generator to furnish the current. A tubular strut from the frame of the ship made the blowpipe. And these, Jerry questioned, and pointed to the priest's vestments that Winslow still wore. Oh, it was all quiet up above, said the inventor, and I came down the rope, but there was one of them waiting at the bottom. He didn't need these any more when I left, so I took them to help get about. He stopped to cross quickly and pick up the flamethrower as the flame died away. It roared as he worked at the mechanism, then dwindled again. Its light for an instant was reflected in a liquid on the floor. Broken, said Winslow, in an anguished voice. The vials are gone, smashed, and I counted on this to hold off the mob, to get us safely out. He regarded the instrument with silent dismay. The blue flame, as he held it, flickered and died. 
Not so good, said Jerry slowly. He stopped to retrieve the knife. This, he reflected, was their sole weapon of defense. In the dim light his eyes met that of Winslow's in mutual comprehension of their plight. There were caverns beyond, dark and forbidding. Did they lead to the outer world? Or instead, was it not probable that they went to some deep subterranean dens, from which this monster had learned to come at the priest's summons? Jerry put from his mind all thought of escape in that direction. And Marahana, too, he told Winslow, what will become of her? The girl got the essence of the question. Fumbling for phrases that they knew, she made them believe that she was safe. Her people, she told them, would protect her. Yes, Jerry agreed, I guess that's right. She's a princess, you know, he reminded Winslow, and the great mass of the people look up to her. Only the priest and warrior gangs will be opposed. But how can we get through them? The question was unanswered. We've got to knock them cold some way, said the inventor. Got to give them a fright that will last till they let us get through. Once at the big shaft, where we came down, we can make our getaway. But how to do it? His voice died away in dismal thought. Jerry's eyes were casting about. Priest's robe? No, not good enough. It had brought Winslow through, but it couldn't take them back. Marahana? No help there. She had enough to do to protect herself from the fury of the priests. His eyes rested again on the steaming, blackened mass that still showed the horrible features that had marked the head of the monster. The sun god. There was an idea there. Come, he said to Winslow, and walked swiftly across to the severed head. He had to steel his nerves before he could lay hands upon the vile thing. The paws were still attached behind the head. He took a grip on one and pulled. The great mass moved. I don't get the idea, said Winslow. Nor I, Jerry admitted, but there's an idea here. His thoughts were racing in the moment's silence. I got it, he shouted. I got it. If only I can make Marahana understand. He led the girl nearer to the door, where his signs could be seen more plainly. You, he told her, go out there. He pointed to the place where the priests had stood. Tell your people. He took the attitude of an orator, declaiming to his audience. We have come here from the sun. Again his signs were plain. Marahana nodded. This plainly was literal truth to her. Tell them, he continued earnestly, we have saved them from this thing. Tell them it was no sun god but a monster that the priests had kept. Monster, he exclaimed, and pointed to the head and to the body that still writhed and jerked spasmodically. No, God, no. And again the girl showed her understanding. Her eyes were glowing. Then, said Jerry, indicating Winslow and himself, we will take the head that they have worshipped, and we'll drag it out and throw it to the priests. His gestures were graphic, the girl nodded her head in an ecstasy of comprehension. And then, Jerry added softly, for Winslow's hearing, we'll beat it, and with luck, we'll make it safe. There's a chance, said Winslow softly, there's a chance, and that's all we ask. It's up to you, Marahana, Jerry told her. 
His words were meaningless, but the tone sufficed. She drew herself proudly erect, wrapped herself closely in the robe of braided gold, and stepped firmly and fearlessly through the portal and down toward the platform of the priests. The two men watched from the shadows. Beyond the outline of the platform, they saw the warrior clans, a phalanx of protecting bodies. And beyond, drawn back in huddled consternation, were masses of white-faced people, Marahana's people, who listened now in wondering silence to their princess. Marahana made her way slowly to the platform's edge. Of all the countless ones to have gone that road, she was the first ever to return. She stood silent while her eyes found their way scornfully over the enemy below. Then, looking beyond them, she began to speak. Her soft voice echoed liquidly throughout the room. She gestured, and Jerry knew that she was giving them the message. From the priests there came once a hoarse, inarticulate growl of hate and unbelief. She silenced them with her hand. She pointed to the heavens, and she told them of the sun, and of the two who were true children of the sun, who had come to save them from their false god. Her voice rose as she told her people, in impassioned tones, that which she had seen, and she was shouting above the tumult of the priests and pointing directly at them, as she made the roof echo with the message, Oang, Diva! Oang, Diva! The god is dead, translated Jerry. Diva means death. She said that of herself before we left. Come on, he shouted, and laid hold of one great claw. It's our turn now. Winslow was tugging at the other foot. Between them, they dragged into the light the obscene burden. Down the long ramp they took it, and off upon the platform of the priests, where Marahana waited. The priests, as Jerry's quick glance showed, were milling wildly about. It seemed that a charge was soon to follow, but the commotion ceased as the two men came upon the platform, hauling between them the great scorched head of Oong. The vast hall was without movement or sound as they made their way out to the front. Jerry stood erect and faced the crowd. He pointed, as had Marahana, toward the sun somewhere above those thick masses of rock. He traced it in its course across the sky. He pointed to Winslow and himself, and in loudest tones he roared throughout the room his message, Oong, he shouted, Oong, Diva. I'll count three, whispered in the utter silence, then let her go. Again he took a firm hold on the flabby paw. One, he whispered, and swung his body with the word, two, and three. The men heaved mightily upon the gruesome horror. The head swung ghastly in scorched whiteness into the air. The dead jaws fell open as it crashed downward among the huddled, stricken priests. This way, commanded Winslow. He had been carefully appraising the openings in the crowd. And don't hurry, remember. You're a god to them, or something a darn sight worse. Heads proudly erect, the two strode firmly down the pathway of golden light. The room was silent as the few they met fell back in cringing fear. Slowly, interminably, 
the long triumphal march was made across the rocky cavern of the moon. Not till they reached the portal did the silence break. The shrieks of the priests and the clashing of copper were behind them, as they vanished with steady steps from out the room. "'Now run,' ordered Winslow. "'Run, as if the devils from hell were after you, and I think they are.' They tore madly down the corridor, whose double rows of brightness made possible their utmost speed. There was a narrowing of the passage, Jerry remembered it, where they came out at the foot of the great shaft, the dead throat of the volcano. Behind them, the shrieks and clamor echoed close. A rope was dangling from far up at the top. Jerry leaped for it before he recalled the condition of his arm. In the excitement of the encounter, he had forgotten that the arm was still in no shape for a long hand-over-hand -hand climb. I can't make it, he said, and looked about quickly. There were baskets of fungus growth, already dried from the heat of the midday sun, that had shown where it grew. He dragged one to the narrow part of the tunnel. Winslow tugged at another, and threw it up as a barricade. A chalk-white figure in copper sheathing was clambering upon it as he worked at another of the nets. End of Part 9